Every week on our regular episodes of Shift Shift Bloom, I get to interview people whose lives are very different from mine. And we talk about how each has navigated the twists and turns inherent in transformation. But I wonder, what's universal about how people change? What are the common threads, the connective tissue? I tend to look at change through the lens of my own experience, for the most part, the artist's life. Lucky for us, my curiosity is shared by the co-creator of Shift Shift Bloom, Dr. John Lyons, luminary and author in the field of clinical psychology and systems change. Who better to help me unpack all the questions that fill my mind when the interviews are over? I'm Kristen Sorelli, and you're listening to Shift Shift Bloom, TCOM Takeaways, my conversation with Dr. John Lyons about a recent interview. are back with Dr. John Lyons, and we're here today to review the episode about Rachel Fowler, the co-founder of Tone Lay, the sustainable fashion business based in Cambodia. Welcome, John. Well, thank you, Kristen. It's good to, good to hear and see you again. So, you too. Uh, and what a, what a great job with the interview. So, thank you. There's, there's two kinds of interviews, in my experience at least, that are particularly challenging. So one is the people who don't really talk much. Mm because then you have to draw them out. And then the other is people who talk a lot. And Rachel was certainly in the latter class. So. But what a passionate, smart, articulate person. I agree. It's funny because, you know, as you know, I do these pre-interviews with the interviewees. And it did take her a little bit of time, I think I told you, to warm up to me in the pre-interview. But I think... Once we got over that little hump, she had so much she clearly wanted to share. So you mentioned when you first listened back that you found this one different. What hit you as different? Yeah, well, so in context, and I'm a little bit like Rachel, so you know, my kids always say, Dad, give us the short answer, and I don't. So uh, the context of this is... You know, I was a little bit skeptical about the title of our podcast when we first were bouncing around, Shift Shift Bloom. I've come to love it. But I think Rachel is a perfect example of the shift shift that we're talking about in the title of the podcast, is that more than the others, it seems like, and that doesn't surprise me that she picked out uh, being open-minded as her key to change, because Mm -hmm. it struck me that she was, you know, she starts out one pathway to do fashion and then realizes it's not the kind of environment she wants to be. So she shifts over to art and then she moves forward with her art career and then realizes that's not really the place she wants to be. And she comes back into fashion, but with an So and she's, yeah. I mean, apologies for the sports metaphor, but she's like a punt returner dodging tacklers, you know, moving through <laughs> and moving up towards the, towards the touchdown, right? So I thought yeah. it was fascinating how, how she kept shifting, you know, she runs into funding problems because of uh, misogyny and she shifts over and gets funding from women. So I mean, so it's just a, a series of things where you see her shifting in order to keep moving forward. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that's a great, uh, well, first of all, I'm glad you have grown to like the title of the <laughs> podcast. It's hard. I was thinking about it today too. Is it, is it the right title? Um, but 
it's it was interesting to hear her talk. I think what comes to mind when you say that is she also, in addition to being open-minded, seems to have an incredible well of resilience. Yes. Um, the ability to get back up after being knocked down. And I think that takes me back to, to our conversation, my conversation with her around being an entrepreneur and being an artist. And I, I will say, even though I don't find those two things particularly similar, mm-hmm. I do see a need in both fields to be really resilient, to, to take yes. rejection or take um, obstacles and either move past them or, like you say, move over to the side and find another way around them. Right. Yeah, so I think that's probably true. The, I, I thought her description of the similarity between an entrepreneur and an artist was interesting because of the idea of a, you know, thinking out of the box, you know, not boundering yourself with what you think you know and allow yourself to just do what was right. Although I'm not sure all entrepreneurs always just do what's right <laughs> in that sense. But yeah. you know, I, th- I thought the other thing that was very interesting about her is she's sort of characteristic of this whole movement in corporate uh, world of uh, corporate social responsibility. I mm-hmm. think there's, it's even got its own acronym, so you know it's something when you have your own acronym. So mm-hmm. CSR is actually a, a significant movement of you know how do corporates take social responsibility and in what context. So I thought... That was sort of a driving passion for hers, which I respected enormously. She talked about this this phrase that really popped for me. She she called it a, having a double barrier, like when you have a barrier in yourself, and then you're also facing other people's biases about that. Um, just talk about that a little in terms of maybe what how you see that in your world or how that makes change really even harder than we even think. Yeah, well, I think it's extremely complicated. I was thinking very much along the same lines, uh, but probably more from an old white man perspective than, than you, <laughs> right? So, I mean, because it was clear, and we talked about this, that ultimately the solution to racism in the U.S. requires change on the behalf of white people. But the same message came through from Rachel's. Ultimately, the end of misogyny depends on men stepping up and doing the right thing. And so we have to kind of figure out how we create cultures where that's... And you see the pushback right now. You know, you see the you know, the toxic masculinity is trying to... And the idea that somehow being not misogynistic is canceling men, you know, all this kind of nonsense, mm. that we have to kind of figure that out as a culture of how do we actually achieve these goals? Because I, I think in the end, everybody buys the vision. Uh, the strategy to get to it, though, is is different. So that that's mm. one take that I took on it is, oh, I, I feel my responsibility even greater to try and do what I can as a white man uh, to help change white culture and male culture, so to be less uh, biased. Um, the other piece of it is there is a quite a bit of challenge, I think, any time that you are identified as an other, that mm. you get co-opted into the identity of being the other. And so, you know, equity officers and corporations are the highest level person of color, right? So wait a minute. So actually the highest level person of color should be the CEO, right? And not mm. the equity officer or whatever you call the person responsible for diversity in the workplace. So I think there's this 
problem, that it might be duly the double barriers of people whose identity then ends up putting them in a position where that their identity is them, and that's their role, and so I think that's actually also a trap. So I think, I thought that was a very interesting uh, discussion that you had with her. Yeah, and I'm really still swimming around in the question that she brings to the table, what am I directly responsible for? And she was asking that question, I think, um, of herself as, uh, you know, an entrepreneur and a business owner when she was, um, when boundaries were being blurred and she was taking part in blurring boundaries and then realizing that was preventing her from actually being a good leader. And I just love that question. Like, I think if, if we asked that question a lot regularly, then maybe things would move towards, as you said, like the shared vision. We can all get the, the, we maybe can all get on board with the vision, but the strategies are different. And I think I don't always ask myself, what am I directly responsible for here? Mm-hmm. I just kind of get swept into the tide of, well, for women, and sometimes it's like, we just get swept into the tide of, I'm responsible for everything. You know, right. I'm holding up everything. Um, right. So well, as I, she points out, that's a trap and it's a bit arrogant uh, when you fall into that particular trap. So. Uh, you know, in, uh, she reminded me in, in therapy, oftentimes people use the metaphor of when you get on a plane and they do the announcements, the safety announcements, they always say, you know, put on your own oxygen mask before you put on, you help somebody else. And there's a reason for that, because yeah. if you pass out because you don't have oxygen, you can't help them and then more people die, right? So, yeah. So the idea that you need to take care of yourself if you want to be able to take care of other people is fundamental. And I think her story kind of captured that because she she's very committed to creating a workplace for the workers, which is a, a very, very noble. But she does have to take care of herself in order to do that. And I think that was a big part of her discovery and her journey. Absolutely. That stood out to me as maybe even more than open-mindedness, at least in her current life, her mm-hmm. current incarnation as a business owner, she really needed to set that set that boundary and also prioritize herself before she could change, before she could yeah, enable which, change. In some cultures, and particularly with her culture of how she was raised, that sounds like it's wrong, right? That, mm-hmm. that sounds like it's narcissistic or selfish or something, but it's not. So long as you don't stop there, right? You have to take care of yourself first, but that does mean that prepares you to take care of others. Yeah, let's talk about religion. If you look at her behavior, it all is very long in line with her, the values of her upbringing. Mm. So, but not the practice, perhaps. So I, I was interested. I had a very personal reaction, actually, from her story because I Tell me about that. grew up in a in a uh, conservative Christian background, and okay. uh, so I don't know if you noticed, but uh, Rachel's primary emotional expression is laughter, which is exactly like my father. So the only emotion my father was ever allowed himself to communicate, for the most part, was laughter. So he'd laugh when he's angry, he'd laugh when he's sad, he'd laugh when he's happy, right? And so we became quite nuanced. You know how you know people who live in Inuit communities and so forth up north in Alaska and, and northern Canada, they have all sorts of ways of describing snow and icy conditions, right? So 
I became expert at detecting different emotions in laughter. And I noticed with, with Rachel that she was very similar to that. And I could hear by the end of your interview, I could hear what I thought was, you know, angry laughter and mm. uh, sad laughter and ironic laughter and actually just amusement. So I, I, I was struck by that. I'm kind of wondering if that's part of uh, Christian culture where you're not allowed to to express negative emotions. It's not not seen as polite. So anyway, so I was struck by that personally. That's really interesting. She has a very particular energy and a very particular sort of um, voice and vocal quality. And now I want to go back and listen to her to her various laughs. You you mentioned that I think uh, last time we talked ab- about your dad and mm-hmm. about having to kind of like tune in to the subtext of the laughter, that's something I didn't pick up on, but I appreciate that you did. And I think you're, I think you're actually right in thinking back because I think what stayed with me with her, what is, is her voice. She has this sort of very like light and upbeat, um, positive sounding voice. Very. And a lot of times what she's saying is really belies that. It's not, it's, you know, she's talking about things that are traumatic, tragic, challenging, um, but doing it all kind of with a, like with a smile on her face. So that's, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I would say, you know, if I were to predict her journey, that she will return to a spiritual place at some point. Um, I think that all that she believes in is so deeply rooted in pretty profound uh, values and morality that it's sort of hard to escape not having some overarching series of beliefs around those kinds of things, or else why why would you? So I I, I just I think her 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 clearly her morality and values that she's embedded into her uh, work are profoundly important and and really quite admirable. So I'm not sure her story is over on that on that particular dimension. I I bet you're right. I even get the sense when she talks about she talked about wanting to be a farmer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's something spiritual in that to me. Like I don't think it was coming from a place of again, she laughed, you know, and she sort of said, "Oh, you know, this is my little secret life that I want to live, but I think there's something to living on the land and being close to the land and having livestock that's, that has an aspect of religi- religiosity or spirituality to it. And I think she's just, it's just going to, it's going to reemerge for her in a different form. Yes. You know, maybe. It won't, it won't be purity culture in all likelihood, right? But it, it'll come out in a different sort of way. Because it's clearly such a fundamental part of her. Yeah. Had you heard the term purity culture before? I had not, no. Hmm. It was new to me. So um, I looked it up, I did a little reading. So uh, it's, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you manifest it the way she was describing, it is fundamentally misogynistic. And there are some, there is some history of that kind of, those kind of beliefs that it's always, it's never the man's fault, it's always the woman's fault that when anything Mm -hmm. happens, you still see that. In uh, some of our, our rape prosecutions and sexual harassment kinds of um, uh, legal cases, and so 
it sounds like it's a little bit more formally articulated in this that particular culture. So yeah, I I did some reading too because I'm sure the phrase went by my eyes or brain before, but I wanted to know a little bit more about it. And one thing that I found out in my reading. I don't know if this is true in the particular church that she grew up in, but I, I do remember having friends growing up from more conservative backgrounds who wore purity rings. And when I looked that up, I discovered that really they were wearing the rings. It was a ring that was obviously their commitment to their own sexual purity, but it was also um, in some churches bestowed upon them by their fathers. And I just thought, that's, whoa. I mean, it's almost too on the nose in terms of patriarchy. Well, you know, in some Christian religious weddings, the father gives the bride away. Very common, yeah. Yeah. So that's all the same kind of, metaphorically the same sort of, um, you know, it's, uh, this is going to be way too more extreme than I mean it, but male ownership of the, of the woman kind of. Yeah, and passing from one male, one male owner to yeah. another male owner, from the father to the yeah. husband. Um, there's dowry situations in, in cultures and so forth. So it is a, it is a historical reality in, in humans that we have a bit of that history in different places. There are also matriarchal cultures where that's not an issue. So. I'd like to know more about that. <laughs> yeah, well, we should find some interviewees who, who grew up in matriarchal cultures. We should. Um, the other, another thing that came up, I think, when listening back was she talked a lot about the nervous system and sort of the body holding the trauma and um, maybe more so than our other guests have before. And I wonder, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so I, I have well, a couple of different thoughts. As number one is, you know, you're a actor, singer, songwriter, right? And we've had a, uh, uh, a policeman and a entrepreneur as our last two guests. And in all three cases, including Jordan, who actually works in helping fields, trauma has been an issue, right? Mm. Trauma has come up in every single interview you've done so far. Now, in none of those cases, the best of that I can tell was the trauma a causal agent for change. It wasn't because of trauma that Jordan decided to for change genders, to transform his genders, and it's not because of trauma that uh, Rachel decided to go into the fashion business. But trauma was always a part of their stories. And so what it got me thinking about was that maybe what we're hearing is the people who have been able to successfully get past their traumas and learn from them and use. I thought Rachel did about the best job I've ever heard of how somebody uses therapy. Right, so she didn't make it her obsession. She didn't mm. talk about you know this and that, and that, but she used the talking to the therapist as a way to help her think about decisions she needed to make in her life, and then made her decisions, yeah. and then lived her life. Right, her life wasn't her therapy. Her therapy was in fact supplemental to her life, which yeah. is exactly the right way to think about therapy. Um, and it's, you can get that from a mentor. You can get that mm-hmm. from a family member. You can get that from a friend. Right, but. 
you probably do need to get that, right? You need to have somebody to bounce things off with and so forth, somebody important in your life that you respect and that you trust that you can have those kinds of conversations with. So I was struck by that. I was struck by the universality of mm. fairly significant trauma experiences so far. We'll have to keep an eye on that. In terms of the physiological aspects of it, uh, she's, I mean, she's spot on. So she was, uh, she's <laughs> obviously does her homework, right? Yeah. And so, and, and she's applied her homework to her life, right? Because the, the overarching uh, research on the neurophysiology of trauma suggests that it does impact your regulatory system, typically through the amygdala, and that dysregulation of that is a primary symptom of trauma. And so that's what causes a lot of the uh, behavioral, emotional, and uh, psychological challenges with trauma is because you become affectively dysregulated. Um, it's not unlike a head injury. It can cause the same thing. A stroke can cause the same thing. Any damage to the amygdala. You're able to rehabilitate your amygdala just like you, you can retrain yourself to regulate your emotions. But I thought she captured that kind of fight, flight fight kind of uh, mechanism that actually gets dysregulated with trauma very well. Tell me just a little bit more about that. Um, you just used a phrase that I don't really understand, uh, affectively dysregulated. What does that mean? Your emotions are all over the place, mm. right? You just cannot control your emotions. So, you know, typically people cry when they're sad, they laugh when they're happy, they, um, you know, they are able to... Um, reflect, mirror other people's emotions. And if you lose control of your emotional life, then it can be all over the place. Mm -hmm. You can be at a happy place and burst out crying, or you can start laughing and giggling when you're at the funeral of a loved one, right? So you just lose your ability to control your emotions. So, you, you know, if you know stroke patients, sometimes they'll just be sitting there and they'll just start crying. It's not mm -hmm. because they're sad, it's because they lose control of their emotions. So. So it becomes very difficult with people who have significant trauma experiences to pick up on their emotional life. You have to ask them, and they have to tell you, because you can't go off their physiological reaction. And she described that quite well. Yes. Other people are experiencing her in a certain way in her presentations where she's getting very anxious, but her emotional life was something quite different. Yes. Right? And so that's where it gets so, why it's so important to ask people, you know? What's going on? Why are you mm. feeling this way and so forth? I, I'm stopped because I'm thinking, yeah, wouldn't it be great if in that moment that she describes where people are telling her she's just nervous and she's mm -hmm. having a full-blown panic attack, if somebody had just paused and said, what, what's going on? I don't know that at that moment she, she would have been able to articulate it or that she had gone that far in the process of therapy that she could stand outside it, but... Yeah, I think a good coach, if that was a coaching mm. uh, kind of experience, a good coach would might be able to do that. You can't do that in the middle of an actual business presentation. <laughs> it's not going to work, right? Um, and no one should ever self-monitor because the, the thing everybody should always remember is nobody can tell what you're feeling, right? And so the, I teach my students all the time that you know when you're presenting, don't tell people you're nervous, right? Because they can't tell. Number one, they don't care, and they're not really paying attention. And number two, they can't tell. And when you tell them that, then suddenly their whole sense of you changes. And so you just have to kind of 
do it. You own the emotions. You live with the emotions. You learn from the emotions yourself, but you just don't self-monitor in those kind of public settings. When you say self-monitor, do you mean name it and claim it publicly? Name it and claim it publicly. Okay. So you don't mean... Uh, you don't mean by self-monitoring, self-awareness. You mean right. speaking out. Speaking out, telling everybody yeah. else what's going on inside your head. Mm. Some things are best left inside your head. They're important to know. They're important for you to know, but they're not necessarily important for everyone else to know at a particular moment. Wow. Because, because you don't have any control over how they perceive you, right? And so, so you need to be a little cautious about that. It's interesting because I think in my world, <laughs> and I don't know even what that means at this moment in time, my world, but I think sort of like in the the creative person's environment. Yeah, like I'm thinking I'm, I'm teaching acting classes right now, right? And I'm, think, I'm often saying to my students, well, just name it and claim it, you know, speak it out. You feel nervous, just say it. And then this way it's acknowledged and you can, you cannot hold it inside. You're teaching them. Mm. Picture them at, you know, picture one of your students getting the lead role in Hamilton and they're up on stage in Broadway and they suddenly stop and turn to them. <laughs> I really feel anxious. You know, it just wouldn't work, right? I mean, no, it would it. not. But, but in it would learning, not. when you're teaching them, yeah, owning, and that all makes perfect sense. Yeah. So it depends on when you do that. So a good coach will help. A good teacher helps the student get through that so that when they're actually in performing, it doesn't happen. Yeah. We have to work really hard to be functional humans, don't we? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes, it does take work. It takes that's why it takes a while, right? We don't we're not we don't crawl out of the womb uh, being functional. It takes some time. And it takes some love and it takes some teaching and it takes feedback, a lot of feedback, and it takes a willingness to accept that feedback and learn from it. So I mean the more the, the, the evidence is clear. The more people interact with their environment, the more rapidly they learn. Tell me more about that. Well, I mean, that's just how, that's just how people learn, right? So you, the, most, the, the curious kids are the ones that learn the fastest, mm. the ones that are interested in their environment. And so as a parent, you want to create an environment that is stimulating for your kids because you're trying to help them become curious because being curious and wanting to know about your environment is the strongest uh, strategy for encouraging learning. And that brings me right back to Rachel in a way, because as she told her story, both in the pre-interview setting and then again in the, in, the, in the recorded interview, I kept marveling at, I, I would call it curiosity, but just sort of like her depth and level of thoughts as a younger person, you yes. know, that she was looking at that garment and saying, this this took a long time to make. Somebody's not getting paid fairly. It was not something I was thinking as a teenager. At, at 12, right. No, yeah. Exactly, right. Yeah, no, I think, I think the, you know, as I listened to her, I, I was thinking to myself, oh, I'd love to have her as a student. You know, what, a, mm. what, an, what an incredibly interested person, right? She's interesting, but she's also interested, right? And yes. she wants to understand things. She wants to know things completely. And she thinks it through. And yeah, I don't know that I would have been aware of the of the cost of producing clothing. I mean, that being said, you know, I have been known to purchase my fashion at Costco. So I'm, <laughs> I'm an expert in such things, right? Well, you might have second thoughts about that after you uh, yeah, you stew on on her that. interview. Yeah. 
I may have to overpay. I don't know, but I, I suspect somehow this the same problem still exists. I just need to buy her fashions. So. <laughs> I don't think she caters to the male consumer. <laughs> I think I think her line is uh, solely female at this moment. I did want to ask her, and I didn't get around to it. Uh, and maybe it's something I'll ask her and follow up and put in the show notes. Just what the average consumer, like to your point, what the average person can really do to take small steps towards helping the fashion industry change. Because I think another thing that she pointed out was you can't always even trust the lingo. You can't even trust the label fair trade. You know, it's... It's a shell game. They just, uh, they do everything fair, except then they yes. purchase stuff that they outsource the things that is not are not fair. Yes. Well, that's what's, that's what actually one of the, what I think is one of the cool things about the pandemic, at least in the U.S. Is so, mm. so it's being advertised in the media as the great resignation. Yeah. But it's not really. It's, a, it's the great retirement plus the mm. great promotion. And so we've come to realize that there's a large number of people that are grossly underpaid and they don't want to do it, right? And mm-hmm. so who can blame them? They don't have to do it. You can pick whatever job you want. It's not the responsibility of certain people in the United States to take a minimum wage of $7 because other people want to live comfortably. That's no nobody's responsibility, right? And so this idea that you can't get anybody unless you pay them $15 an hour, regardless of what Congress does or says, is a really good thing because mm-hmm. it's forcing a greater level of equity. And because we have a huge problem, it's, it's going back, it's almost like it was in the you know, 16th century Europe, where you had these huge mansions and summer palaces and all this stuff held by a small number of people, and other people were scraping to get by for food, right? So we're headed in that direction. So I think this is actually offers the potential to be corrective of that. And I think um, Rachel's work is a a piece of that puzzle, is that creating jobs that people want that are sustainable for them. And I suspect that Rachel will never be listed in a list with Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk as, you know, billionaires, right? But do you really need another billion? Do you really need another billion dollars? Mm-hmm. Do you need 10 billion? What's, how much is enough? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I think I wrote down as I was listening to her talk, I'm holding for um, the church bells here on my end. They're ringing. Is it noon? It's noon. Uh, yeah. Dong, dong, dong. What I was going to say before the church bells went off were, um, I kept hearing with her these two things. Recognition that something needed to change and desire to change it. Right. And I, I think if we don't have both we, we culturally, we as a community can't move forward. I think there's a lot of recognition right now. And then I wonder, like, yeah. do we have the desire to actually right. make the change? And that's what, what you're talking about, about the minimum wage, you know, and people saying, I'm not going to do it. Everybody's recognizing that that is a truth, that mm-hmm. people should not have to work, do any job for $7 an hour. But are, do we have the desire to, to change it? Right. 
Yes, I think that's, you're absolutely right. And I think uh, that's what's unique and beautiful about Rachel is she has both in spades. I mean, she's got big time both, right? So yeah. it's great. And she's actually figured out a way, it sounds like, to make it work. I mean, the, as my mother would always say, the proof is in the pudding. Um, and so we'll see, <laughs> right? I mean, so. Yeah. We should end, I think, by encouraging our listeners to, to go to tonelay.com and and support her work and out, right. buy a piece of clothing or, you know, get, make a donation. It's a, it's a, it's yeah. a neat company and she actually does more than, uh, just, just sell lines or even her yeah, sustainability open closet, thing. Open closet yeah, is open amazing. Closet, that's a clever idea. So, yeah. For those of you who don't know open closet, that's when you get tired of the, you know, you can only amateurize an investment in clothing over a few wares before you get tired of it. <laughs> and so you can put it back on the marketplace. It's like a goodwill, upscale goodwill. Yeah. Yeah. What are your final thoughts on Rachel Fowler? I'm glad there are people like Rachel Fowler in the world. I'm grateful. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful that we get to do this and check in with each other and have rich conversation after the rich conversation. Yeah. A pleasure always. Okay. And uh, I look forward to the next one. I do too. And I think it's fascinating the the and I think we're going to be exploring it more the role of trauma in people's lives as not being defining but as being things that create uh, challenges to work through and around and over and away from or whatever. Well, you are right on it because I've already already recorded a few more episodes that we haven't you haven't listened back to yet and I can tell you that you're right. Okay. Well, we will talk again soon. Thank you, Dr. Yes, Lyons. You as well. Bye. Shift Shift Bloom is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized timely interventions and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at PradeFoundation.org and at TCOMConversations.org and by the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky. Online at IPH.UKY.EDU.